the God of the flood and the man of faith saved from the flood. That's our title. That's where we're, we're looking to. Uh, the ability to read the Bible. All right, the ability to read the Bible and understand its content is something that I, I greatly desire for Three Rivers Church. Fifteen years, uh, this church has been here and, and our global work and our local work and all that we do, uh, what drives that is, is God's Word that is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path and the transformation that God's Word brings in the lives of His people. And, and my desire, my desire as, as a church planter slash pastor slash teacher slash domain engager is that God's people and those coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in Him would be able to adequately read and understand their Bibles apart from this time, so that when you leave here, the only teaching you receive during the week isn't what you get on Sunday. You're able to feed yourself. You're able to open the manual and read and engage with the Lord and hear Him and obey Him. Unfortunately, in the time in which we live, we have a tendency, because of the air that we breathe, the worldview we possess, and you have a worldview whether you realize it or not, you're born with one and your culture conditions you to view the world through a certain set of lens. We have a tendency to ask questions in our Bible conversations like, what does this mean to you? Which is the absolute worst question in the history of truth to ever ask. Because truth is objective. That is, it's true whether you agree with it or not. It's not subjective. Truth is objective. Truth is universal. Not cultural. That means truth is true everywhere. It's true at every time in history. And it's constant. That means it doesn't change. So when we ask what something means, we're asking about what is true. Not what my perception of it is. Do you understand that? When we ask... If something's true, or when we ask what it means, we're asking about what is true, not what one's perception of it is. Because the reality is, my perception can be wrong. I'm wary, when it comes to this passage today, of atheistic naturalism's dismissal of the flood. I'm wary of it. Well, because they assume way too much. I'm wary also of the creation scientist that reads onto the text something the author never intended. Now, that probably hit you in a place you didn't want it to hit you this morning. Because we have a tendency to lean that direction. The fact that the flood happened is even beyond questioning. Nearly every culture on the planet has a flood account. And geology proves that there was a globally catastrophic water event. So the fact that it happened is beyond questioning. The question for our text today is not, was there a flood? That's the wrong question. The questions are, who did it? What was its purpose? Who survived? Why did they survive? Those are better questions. And we come right down to it. Moses, the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 
seems more concerned with the people of God mixing their faith in the Lord with demonic religious practices than in proving there was an ark or a flood. Moses is not concerned with proving to you there was a flood or that there was an ark and what it looked like. That's not his intent. As a matter of fact, the author of Psalm 106 validates Moses' concern in his historical lament when he writes in Psalm 106, particularly beginning in verse 35, this psalm is a historical account of the people of God after they came up out of Egypt. And it is a song, but it's a song of lament, looking back on the things that didn't work out so well. You notice we don't sing songs about things that didn't work out so well. I don't know that we should. I'm just saying we don't do that. They did. But in verse 35, this Historical lament says, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. You see, that's what Moses is concerned with. So remember, when we're studying Genesis, he's speaking and writing this to A group of people who've just left Egyptian slavery and are about to enter the land that God has given them and dispossess nations who do things they are not supposed to do and worship gods that are not gods, but are in fact, as Moses identifies, demons. That's Moses' concern. And so we have to understand the message is not the flood. The message is not the flood. We do need to understand that the story, this account, is about the preservation of right theological training about the God of the Bible so that the people are not snared into demonic activity. Now, we have the manual, and we're going to read as you read through the Old Testament, that they were snared. And they did some things that were not good for them. And God corrected them for that. And Moses is concerned on the front end with that very thing. He's telling them, I want you to know what we are about to encounter so that you don't fall into the snare, the trap. We also need to understand the stories about what a people of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ looks like who are saved by sovereign grace. And so therefore our title, the God of the flood, and what a person of faith in the Lord Jesus looks like. So our task as we come to this passage is to read the passage, not as atheistic naturalists or as creation scientists. Our task is to read it with Moses' intent. Moses was preserving the knowledge of God and putting on display what a people of faith in the Lord looked like. So that as they entered the land, they would know the Lord well and follow Him well. That message, every single one of us in this room needs to wrap our minds and our hearts around. There's a great little book I put in your notes that are on the blog by John Currid, C-U-R-R-I-D. And you can see the bibliography there. You can go on the blog and take a look at the... Notes And the title is Against the Gods, the polemical theology of the Old Testament. And his whole point is that Moses is writing, which I've shared with you already, to prepare the people to know the Lord so that they are able to defend against bad doctrine that leads to bad practice. Because here's the deal. You and I will act on what we really believe. In the Bible, practice is never divorced from what we know and believe in our hearts. 
And so what we know and what we believe is what we will do. And Moses knows this. Which is why he wants to begin with them knowing who God is. This God who rescued them from Egyptian slavery. Who is he? What's his name? What does he do? What's he like? So that as they believe the right things, it will begin to work itself out in the practices. Notice the first commandments that God's going to give them in the ten. The ten commandments are all doctrinal in nature. They're about God. The first four are all about God and the remaining six are about how you practice the knowledge of God. Which is why the Lord Jesus himself sums up the law. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That, that, that's it. And so Moses wants him to know God and then practice it well as followers of the Lord Jesus. So we only have two points this morning. The first point is God the Lord is God and there is none like him. God, the Lord is God, and there is none like him. Now, Moses does something really cool in the text here. Moses, remember, was schooled in the house of Pharaoh. Moses is well-educated. And Moses, being a well-educated man in literature, but also in leadership, is leading God's people, by God's call, into the place God has for them to stage the movement to the nations. And as Moses is writing, he's using this fantastic little literary device called a chiasm. And what a chiasm does is in writing, and you don't see this in our nice center column referenced Bibles. This is one of the disadvantages to just having information on a page. And sometimes we miss the message because it's not necessarily written out the way that it's intended to be taken. And, and part of our challenge in our context today too is that we, we're not just avid readers. And one of the challenges to not being an avid reader is we don't recognize literary devices when we have them. And so one of the things I always challenge you to do and I want to continue to challenge you to do is don't lose the ability to read. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is not in your notes we, one of the things we're discovering in neuroscience, we, I say we, I'm not, not me, not you, maybe you're a neuroscientist, I don't know, but neuroscience is discovering the audiovisual technology is actually more devastating than helpful educationally. And education is beginning to catch up on that reality. And so you're beginning to see even trends in education moving back away from audiovisual technology to other things because they're discovering that even in your fingertips, the tiny nerves that are connected to your brain and the ability to hold a pencil and pen and write is key to memorization. And so it's important that we know how to read. Don't lose that skill. And I don't mean being able to string together some words into a sentence, right? I mean to understand because sometimes we speak English and hear somebody speaking English, but it doesn't compute. It's like, I don't know what he just said, right? And so it's the ability not just to read it, but to comprehend it. And what I want you to see in this passage today is Moses is showing us something about the Lord that's important. And that is, the Lord is the God of the flood and there is none like him. So he uses this literary device called a chiasm because it works on a regression to a center point. And that center point then works out to a creation and the rebuilding of something God destroyed. What I find interesting, now I don't believe this was Moses' intent... But I do believe the God who's inspiring Moses to write, it is his intent. That the God who will die on a cross inspired Moses to use a literary device in the shape of an X across to get the point across so that even in the text we will see that even literarily God was looking ahead. 
I think that's fascinating. And it's just the way it is. So hopefully they're going to be able to show this up on the screen. And I know it's not going to be very big. um, But it'll serve the point for this morning. This is the literary shape of the passage. It regresses through judgment to a centerpiece, which is Genesis 8-1. And then it begins to progress through recreation to an act of worship. Notice how this works through. You can see it up on the screen. Or if you're using your phone or tablet and you see it on the, the blog there, you can see how this works. So Genesis 6-11 to 13, we see that God resolves to destroy the rebellious human race. And guilty. Corrupt. We saw last week the intent of his heart is only evil continually. And so God says, I'm going to bring destruction upon the human race and upon the face of the earth. Then we see this regression down to God gives Noah instructions and he builds an ark according to those instructions. We see next in the regression down to judgment, the Lord commands his people in chapter 7 verse 1 to 9 to enter into the ark. Then we see in chapter 7, verse 10 to 16, the flood begins. The deep is split open. And the floods of the deep and the floods of the earth and the rain begin to come down. And the flood begins. And we see in the regression that the flood prevails 150 days and the mountains are covered. And we read that in chapter 7, verse 17 to 24. And then we come to chapter 8, verse 1, which is the centerpiece. It's the point. But God remembered Noah... And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So we're going to come back to that in just a moment moment, because it's the centerpiece. So we see this salvific event in which God remembers Noah and the animals and Noah's family and the people that are surviving in the ark. And then we see the progression up to God's recreating. Notice this is the easiest part to see the structure where the flood recedes 150 days, right? It progressed 150 days. The mountains were covered. God saves and remembers his people. Then the flood recedes. How many days? 150. And the mountains are what? Now visible again. Then we see that in chapter 8, verse 6 to 4, the earth dries up. Whereas in the regression, it's flooded. Then we see in chapter 8, verse 15 to 19, God commands these people to leave the ark. You remember back up the tree there? He commanded them to enter. Now in the recreation, he's commanding them to leave. In chapter 8, verse 20, Noah builds an altar. Remember up in the regression, God said build an ark. Now that the earth is drying out and they're coming out, He commands Noah to build an altar. And by the way, there's all kinds of good stuff here. And and for the sake of time, we don't have time to to delve into it. But there's there's a little side note. You give me a side. You give me one little rabbit trail. Yes, thank you. Because the first act out of the ark is worship. This is one of the reasons we're taught in the New Testament. That this act of worship is key on the backside of Paul's theological work in Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11, the first thing he does in chapter 12 as an act of practice is therefore, therefore, right? Romans 12, 1. This is what you are to do. And he says, this is your spiritual worship. Why? Because the first thing that saved people do is they worship. So the first thing that happens when they come out of the ark is they build an altar. And then the Lord makes this covenant with Noah in chapter 8, verse 21 to 22, where he resolves not to destroy the earth again while it remains for its created purposes. 
this literary structure you see up here on the screen, as you can see on your notes, highlights the point. This statement is key here. It highlights the point. It's all pointing you to chapter 8, verse 1. That structure is intended to get your eyes down there on the Lord and his saving event. It highlights the point while contrasting the Lord with the demonic deities of Canaan. And we'll get to that in just a second. So the structure is to point you to chapter 8, verse 1. So let's read it again. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts, all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. This centerpiece here is the Lord remembers. That is, he takes salvation action toward his people. Now you got to think here, this isn't the Lord remembering because he forgot. Psalm 50 reminds us the Lord is not a man that we should regard him as a man. He's God and there is no other. So it's not like the Lord forgot. When you read on through the book of Genesis and you track this idea of God remembering, like in Genesis 19.29, Abraham and Lot, the Lord remembered Abraham. Not because he forgot. This idea of the Lord remembering is the Lord coming to the aid of. And from the perspective of the author, it's the Lord saw and he took note of the promise that he made and he has come now to rescue me. So the Lord remembered Abraham and Abraham's descendants and he came and rescued Lot. Genesis chapter 30 verse 22, Rachel was barren and the Lord remembered her. Not because he forgot, but because he's a God of promise. And because he made a promise, he came to keep his promise, to give to her what he had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, God remembers his people in captivity. Not because he forgot, he was off on a journey, but because he comes to save his people. First Samuel 1 Samuel 1.19 with Hannah, who'd be the mother of Samuel, the great prophet, Right? He remembered her. That is, he came and he brought salvation. The centerpiece of this text is there's one God and there are no other gods. And that God is the Lord, the God of the Bible. The one Israel who's rescued you from Egyptian captivity. Moses wants them to remember as you enter into this land, do not begin to think that anyone else, including yourself, has saved you. There's one God, there are no others. He is the Lord, He is the I Am, and He is the one who has rescued you. That's the point of the passage. Because you see, they're about to enter into a place that also has a flood narrative, because it flooded. And they're going to begin to hear these stories, and what they're going to hear is that these many gods, these multiple deities, they did this work. And now they're going to have a theological confrontation. Their mind is going to be divided. They're going to go, what are we supposed to believe? Did the Lord do it, or did these people do it? And Moses is preparing them before they enter the land. You need to remember, there's one God, not many gods. He is the I Am. He is the Rescuer. He is the one who did this. This is important. Because we see point number two here, the Lord is in complete control. And this is the contrast with the demonic deities of Canaan. The Lord is the centerpiece. He saves his people. And he does this in complete contrast with the deities of Canaan. I don't necessarily suggest you go and read the Gilgamesh epic. Alright? But what you will discover if you do decide to read this flood story, 
is that these deities that are presented in this epic are many little deities and they're very human-like. And what you'll discover is they are petty. You'll discover that they're not in control. They kick off something they no longer have power over and it gets out of control and it goes further than they wanted it to go. And you'll discover that they use humans for their advantage, not love humans. And so what Moses is presenting to his people in this story, as you read it, is God is the Lord. He saves his people and he is the one who is in complete control of human history and all the elements of created order. He caused the flood. He made it go away when it was time. And he is the one who saves his people. And so we're learning here as we read through this passage and we have time to read all of it. We're going to look at key key verses in the middle of it. We're learning that the Lord is in complete control of history and nature, unlike these pagan demonic deities that the people are going to encounter. We're going to learn in this passage that the Lord is just in judgment and unwavering in his purposes and merciful to save his people. Contrasted with these these deities who abuse mankind and who have shifting purposes, they want to do it for this reason. As a matter of fact, in the Gilgamesh epic, they kick off this flood they can't control because they're just tired of hearing the noise humans make. That's not just judgment. We learn in the passage... Genesis 6, verse 9, really all the way down through verse 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Not because humans are making noise. The earth is corrupt. God's a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. He's holy. He's completely perfect. Not irritated by humans. Which, by the way, one of the things you'll begin to discover as you grow in biblical understanding, as you read your Bible, you will find these innate theological ideas confronted in the pages of Scripture. And what has happened here is these people have gone away from the knowledge of the Lord. They've begun to make these idols in the image of the God they've created out of their own heart and operated by the demonic. And they read on to them human characteristics. And what we read from the Bible is not human characteristics of God, but the Godness of God. That He's holy, He's perfect, He's righteous. And so the earth was corrupt in God's sight and filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So we learn that God is just in His judgment, not petty. We learn He's holy and that His judgment is right. We learn here that the Lord of the Bible alone stands out as God and there is no other. Listen to Deuteronomy 4.35 and Deuteronomy 4.39. By the way, Deuteronomy is written to the same audience. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all written to the same people for the same purpose. Listen to what Moses says by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to them. To you it was shown that you might know That the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Deuteronomy 4.39 Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. It's one God, not many. And Moses wants his people not just to know there's one God, but know who that God is and know Him personally. You're going to see here, and this is my last point, we're going to move on. The Lord of the Bible disputes and rejects the ideologies and theology and practices of these Near East religions. And he's letting them know that there is only one narrative that matters. And it's the narrative God has given Moses for his people. And then we see something very important here. Our second point, Noah 
as a receiver of sovereign grace, displays the obedience of faith. Noah, as a receiver of sovereign grace, displays the obedience of faith. And you notice last week we came at the end of chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. We saw that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we talked about the fact that this is God's sovereign, powerful grace to Noah. Because we're going to discover Noah's just like everybody else that's corrupt. The difference is God was gracious to Noah. And we saw that God put favor on Noah and he rescued him in spite of himself. And we notice as we got to verse 9 that Noah began to act in a righteous manner. And that order is important. God finds favor. He puts favor on Noah. He rescues him. He changes his heart. And in so doing, Noah then begins to act righteously. And Moses wants his people to know, let's look back at Noah. And the writer of Hebrews, we've got a point about this in just a minute, is reminding us this is what faith in the Lord looks like. This is what faith worked out begins to look like. So Noah's received grace from God, and he begins to display it in an active faith. We see Noah walked with God while the earth walked in corruption. Genesis 6, 9 to 11. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Remember the last person we studied in Genesis 5 who walked with God? Enoch. Noah walked with the Lord. Noah had a personal thriving relationship with the Lord, the God of the Bible. So we see that one of the things faithful people do, those who've been saved by sovereign grace, they walk with God. They have a thriving relationship with the Lord. It is a daily pursuit. Number two, we see that Noah heard the Lord and obeyed him. Chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. God had told him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build this ark. I want you to do it like this. And he gave him specifics. Then he told him, here's what I want you to put on it. And Noah sets out to obey. And chapter 6 ends with this great capstone. Noah did this. He did this. Listen, I ain't building no boat. I ain't going to find animals to go on the boat. I got other things to do. Do you understand what a crazy request this is? Noah's landlocked. Noah's not by the sea coast. And God gives him specific instructions on building a boat because there's coming an event that nobody's ever seen before. There's no framework for this. There's no blueprint on how to do this. This is, this is coming something from nothing. And we see that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Notice we see this again in chapter 7 verse 5. God gives him further instruction. Verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Notice verse 9. Noah, he said, uh, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. Notice chapter 8, verse 17 and 18. We see the regression of the flood. And the Lord now tells him, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out. I think it's absolutely fascinating here. 
Noah simply obeys God's instruction. Notice God never left it up to Noah to figure out what to do. He told him what to do. And then Noah obeyed. Listen to me very carefully. You've been given a manual. And it tells you every single thing to do. You notice I say, if you've been around here a while, you notice I refer to the Bible as the manual. There's a reason I do that. And the reason is because it's filled with instruction on simply what to do. It tells us who God is and how to obey Him. Noah set an example as a person who's been transformed by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that if we hear the Lord, we are to obey Him. How do we hear Him? We read His Word. And we read His Word, we know what the Lord says. And we know what He says, we do what He says. So Noah heard the Lord and obeyed Him. Number three, Noah was also a preacher of righteousness. Second Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah preached Noah was speaking a message. Noah was letting people know, you got 120 years and this thing's going to be kind of coming at you pretty hard and you might ought to repent and believe. Noah told the truth. He preached the message. Number four, Noah acted in complete trust in God's word. Hebrews eleven seven speaks about Noah. It says, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Do you understand that our gospel message contains a component that has been seen, but it contains a component that you can't see? There's this, there's this reality that the powerful gospel changes hearts. It does this invisible work inside you and I that is manifested in obedience. And Noah was preaching about this message. There is a God. There's one God. There are not many gods. Trust Him. Follow Him. Obey Him. Come with me. I know the way. God's going to pour His wrath out on this earth. And He's going to pour it out on that boat. But if you get inside that boat with me, there's shelter for you from the wrath to come. And boy, you can begin to smell the cross right there. God tells us that there's coming a day of wrath. There's coming a day in which God will... Punish finally and forever the sin of man. But he made an escape pod. He made an ark. And that ark is Jesus. And he put him on the cross. And he poured out wrath on every sin. Yours and mine. Past, present and future on Christ. So that all those who will come underneath and walk in Christ. Which is why Paul uses this language so often. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. That's not accidental. The first two chapters of Ephesians is loaded with that phrase some 22 times. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Because when we come by the sovereign grace of God, by faith in Christ, we get up in Christ. So that when the wrath of God is poured out, it doesn't land on us. It landed on Jesus for us. So that we pass through the waters of God's wrath and we come into His glorious presence to worship Him because of what Christ did, not what we did. Noah acted in complete trust to bring that message. There's a component of trust in God that is logical and requires a little bit of reason. God says, and okay, my, my reason is God said, and we do it. But the reality of faith is faith also has a leap at the end of it. God said to do it, but God never tells us what the outcome immediately is going to be. We know the ultimate outcome, right? Jesus wins. And that sounds comforting sitting in this air-conditioned room with some fans going in a place where it's not really costly to follow Jesus. 
But the reality is, if I'm going to obey the Lord, there's a component of going, okay, the Lord said to do it. But there's a jump that has to happen. An act that has to take place. We begin to trust the Lord for the outcome on the next three days. Or maybe the next year. Maybe the next 20 years. I don't know what this is going to cost me in the next 20 years. I understand there's treasure in heaven. Where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. That's awesome. Praise God. But what about the next five years, Lord? What about the next six months, Lord? Noah acted in complete trust in God's word. Because that's what people of faith in the Lord Jesus do. So I ask this question. As we come to the end, what are we supposed to do with this passage? What, what, what do we, what are we supposed to do with the knowledge of God? This God who's in complete control of history, the God who controls every detail, the God's holy, He's righteous, He's just, He's not petty, He's not wavering. What are we supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with this life of faith that if I trust the Lord Jesus and Him taking God's wrath in my place for my sin. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, I've got a few points for you. I may not hit all nine of them, but I'm going to hit a few of them. Number one, listen to Reverse Church. And this, this, I know just to be real honest with you, this bothers me a little bit. And it bothers me because what I, I love and miss about teaching is I had five days a week, six periods a day. And I got to be in people's face constantly with the truth. I get you once a week, if that. They don't even get you on Wednesday. <laughs> it bothers me. And I'll, and I'll be very honest with you, I, I can't fix that. If somebody wants to drop us a $20 million check, we will go buy a chunk of dirt and build a building. just want to say. And then I'll set classes up all week long. I'll run classes all day long. Teach them all day long. Love it. But I get you maybe once a week. So this bothers me to say it, but this is why we teach you to study your Bible. This is why we have things like this here, so that you understand and know, so that you can walk away and open the Word and study. So here it is. So I'm going to tell you something to do that I can't really affect five, six days a week for you. Which is why we've got to feed you. Trust the Holy Spirit to be your counselor, your guide. That's why Jesus gave Holy Spirit. But here you go. Be biblically and doctrinally sound. Be biblically and doctrinally sound. As Paul told Timothy in his last will and testament in 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who, does, who, uh, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handle the scriptures. Don't make the scriptures say what you want them to say. Discover the point of the text. Study hard, dig hard, read hard, pray hard, depend on the Holy Spirit, and be biblically, be doctrinally sound. Test your belief. Test your doctrine. Make sure what you believe about the Lord is right. It matters. Paul will also tell Timothy, keep a close eye on yourself and on the teaching. For by so doing, you'll save yourself and your hearers. It matters that much. It matters that much. So be biblically, be doctrinally sound. Number two, and this is important. Don't let culturally religious practices... That may reflect culture more than sound doctrine teach you about God. We live in a place where Christianity is assumed and that's the danger of a post-Christian South. I'm a product of a post-Christian South and so are you if you're from here. 
Do not let culturally influenced religious practices that may reflect the culture more than God teach you about God. In theological circles, they call this natural theology. Meaning your theology is derived from an observation of the natural world and your culture. You look at the tree or you look at how people act and you go, God must be like that. Please don't do that. That's exactly what the Canaanites did. That's exactly what these people had done that Israel's going in to dispossess. They've made God in their image, in the image of created order. And Paul's going to hit this in Romans chapter 1. And Paul's going to say they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so what happens is, is when we begin to take religiously cultural practices and let them inform our doctrine not the Bible, we make idols, we create idols. And idols are means by which demons begin to influence the people of God. Paul's going to hit this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So Three Rivers Church, be careful. Don't let culturally religious practices dictate you truth about God. Open the manual. We've provided you Bible reading plans, multiple options. You don't have to pick one. Pick one. I mean, you got to pick one, but don't pick all of them. Pick the one you like. Read this thing. Read it through. Pay attention to tools like this so that you learn to read it intentionally, on purpose. Discovering the meaning of the author so that you know God and know how you are supposed to act. Skip down to number six. Battle, fight to massage biblical doctrine into every nook and cranny of daily life. See, the challenge with Israel was they had God confined to the tabernacle. And when they left the tabernacle, they began to practice other things. They divorced their worship at the temple from life at the house. The challenge for us today is no different. We have to massage the truth of God's word down into the nook and cranny, nooks and crannies of every part of daily existence. This is where it gets uncomfortable. Because I promise you, as you begin to read your Bible, you'll begin to ask some questions. Well, geez, how am I supposed to practice that? If that's true, then maybe this practice I'm doing over here doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't necessarily say it's exactly not right. But if that's true, then I can see some problems with my behavior. I can see some challenges with the outcomes of my behavior. And you know what the Bible calls that? Sanctification. The cleanification up of my life. I begin to bring my life in line with the truth of God's word. I begin to act in ways that are different. So battle, and it's a fight because, because I promise you, your culture is fighting against that. Listen, everything teaches a lesson. There's no such thing as non-lessons. Everything communicates something. Everything communicates something. There's a message in everything. And it is constantly either moving you toward Christ or challenging Christocentric decision making. 
So Christian battle to massage biblical doctrine in every nook and cranny of your life. We have a tendency to critique Israel for their idolatry. Because we're too sophisticated to put a little figurine up on the mantle. The difference between us and them is we hold our idols in our hearts. And we put Christian t-shirts on them and call them Jesus. We're no different. So we don't throw rocks at Israel. We're just like them. And the battle for us is to not be like them. That's why Paul will tell the church at Rome, these things were written for your instruction. They were written down so you would know how to act. So battle to massage biblical doctrine in every nook and cranny of your life. Walk with God by the Spirit. Listening to His prompting and obeying His leadership. This begins with knowing God's Word. I firmly believe the Holy Spirit will not whisper any truth into your ear that has not been implanted by the knowledge of God's Word. He's the inspirer of the text. And if you want to hear the voice of God in those quiet moments, you need to hear it. Plant the Word deep in your heart. I'm in Psalm 119. My Bible reading plan has me in Psalm 119 for like several weeks because it just takes them a chunk at a time. Right? In Psalm 119, right? Your Word is a lamp for my feet. And light from my path. I have hidden your word in my heart. That what? I might not sin against you. You need to know what to do and where to go. What's the light? Word. Your word is a lamp for my feet. You know what that means? It means the word will light up the next step. You need to know what Jesus wants you to do this next week or this next six months. Make sure you're in the manual and he will lead you in the way you can go. And why? I've hidden it in my heart so I don't sin. Because, you know, there are going to be moments where Bible's not available. You're going to be somewhere in a situation where there's an ethical challenge. It ain't no Bible verse written about it. There's no Bible verse on it. You know, what am I supposed to... This isn't that bad. I mean, it's, it's not adultery or... I, ain't, I don't know, it's not that bad, Right? Psalm 15, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. And be in God's presence, be a person of character and integrity. How are you going to know what to do in that moment? The word better be hidden. Because you might not be able to say, well, you might, would you wait a second, let me pull that up on my phone, or let me get my Bible out and search for that. You're going to be in that moment where you've got to make a decision and you've got to be right. Battle to walk with God by the Spirit. Listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit as He brings the Scriptures to mind and teaches you how to apply them in that moment. I would say one of the greatest, greatest benefits of walking with the Lord is how the Holy Spirit teaches you to apply it in the moment. Because it's one thing to know the truth, it's another thing to make application of the truth when it counts. Right? It's one thing to talk theory about the game of football. It's another thing to put that helmet on and some pads on and get out there on the field between the stripes and get after it. You see what I'm saying? It's one thing to talk the knowledge of God. It's another thing to apply the knowledge of God when it counts. So you've got to walk with God by the Spirit. Learn to live by faith and not by sight. Learn to live by faith and not by sight. I promise you the greatest rewards of walking with Jesus are not the things that are easy, but it's obedience in the things you can't see. And then he begins to pour the reward into your life for obeying when you couldn't see. And he does. God's wired his universe in such a way. He's just put it together this way. That this is true. Whatever a person sows, that will they also reap. 
He's wired his universe that way. And when you sow life, you get life. Paul tells this to the Romans. When you sow spirit, you get spirit. Learn to live by faith and not by sight. Because when you sow trust in the Lord and he's spoken and he's clear and you act on it, you might not see the benefit today, but there is benefit. In his good season, his good time when he makes it grow. Because we know him and we're people of faith who obey him. That's what Moses wants us to know. Pray with me and then we're going to worship together. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you'll help us to take your word and apply now to this act of worship. Moses instructed us that Noah built an altar and he offered up sacrifices. Beautiful, Lord. You, Noah didn't bring anything. He didn't bring anything to that service that you didn't provide. You were the creator. You were the rescuer. He was just a steward. He was just a manager. And you required of him what was already yours. And you had him come and offer it. And it was a pleasing aroma to you. You received it. It was good. And so Lord this morning we are just like Noah. We, we bring into this place. Nothing we provided. Nothing we supplied. We come as people who are simply managers of your things. Even our own bodies. So Lord, I pray now that you will help us as managers of your resources and managers of our tongue, our lungs, our mind. To offer those thoughts and song up to you as a pleasing sacrifice. And I pray you'd receive that. And it would be pleasing to you. And, and Lord, would you please take that and then pour into us your joy. And may we taste that this morning, Lord. Help us to taste that and walk in that and live in that today. Would you do that for us today? We trust you for that and beg you for that. Now hear us and teach us and receive what we have to offer you in Jesus' name.